The Great King Xerxes is about to meet the woman who won the most beautiful woman in Persia contest. And that's where we left off last time on Through the Bible. I'm Steve Schwetz, welcoming you to another great study with our teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, as we turn to Esther chapter 2, verse 16, we'll see more of the incredible story of God's provision for his people unfold. But first, let's listen to a quick message from Dr. McGee. May now has been set aside as letter month. That's very important to us. And we now are reaching that great segment of the population of the world that hasn't been able to hear the gospel, that three-fifths of the world population. And the only way to go today is by radio. You can't send missionaries and you can't send books in. You can't go under any of these curtains. You can't go through them, but you can go over them by radio. And we trust that the Lord lay upon the hearts of many of you the importance of continuing these broadcasts. It was comparatively easy to get them started, but to continue them now. So many have just about forgotten the Spanish broadcast. This is a tremendous day to get the Word of God out. And I'm trusting that this letter month is going to be a time of real heart searching on the part of many of you that you get involved in getting the Word of God out where it's being used and where it is effective. And we're seeing a tremendous thing taking place. Well, since Dr. McGee recorded that message, we've continued on in this mission to reach the whole world with God's whole word. In fact, this teaching is available today in more than 200 languages. So if you'd like to take Dr. McGee up on his offer to get involved with us, we'd be glad to have you as a partner in ministry. If you want to join our world prayer team, and that's a great way to start, we travel the world on our knees asking God to use his word to save people all over the globe and then to grow them up in Christ. You can sign up today. It's easy. Just go to ttb.org forward slash pray. Or if God's calling you to provide maybe a tank of gas or a new set of tires to keep the Bible bus traveling along, then call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE or visit ttb.org forward slash give. Now, as Dr. McGee mentioned, May is letter month, and it's a special time of year that we set aside to tell the great stories of God's faithfulness in our lives. So why don't you contact us today? Email your note to BibleBus at ttb.org or send it to Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or call and leave a voicemail at 1-800-65-BIBLE. And emails like this one from Lucas are such an encouragement to all of us. Greetings in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I would like to say thank you for the daily teachings on the Word of God, which I listen to online. I hopped aboard the Bible bus in Ezra, and since that time, a revival has begun in me because of the Word of God. I've downloaded notes and outlines and am a faithful student. I pray to last the entire five years and have a complete education. Here's another great one. This is from a listener named Rena. I'm currently going through your study in Revelation. Chapters 3 and 4 have meant a lot, and God has used them to give me assurance in Jesus. The thought that the Lord is preparing us to enter heaven is both exciting and overwhelming, in a good way. I am convinced that God speaks to us today as he spoke to the Philadelphia church. I pray God will give me revelation of his word. 
Your story matters. It's such a privilege to share what God's doing in our lives. So we'd love to hear from you today. Again, the address is BibleBus at ttb.org. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word in our lives. And, and thank you for listeners like these who encourage us with stories of your work in their lives. As we study today, Lord, draw each of us close and then help us to hear directly from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's dive into Esther 2 and 3 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now, friends, as we come back today to the second chapter of the book of Esther, verse 16, and we just left off when it was a cliffhanger. It was at the very moment that this girl Esther was ready to go in into the presence of the king, and we wanted to see what would happen to her. Would she be the winner of the contest? And the very interesting thing is she was the winner. I'm sure you didn't know that till I told you. So let's begin reading then here at verse 16. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head, and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, she's the winner. And again, how did she become winner? Was that by chance or accident? I don't think so. I think that it was by the providence of Almighty God. As we'll see in this next chapter, it was essential that God go before and make arrangements to protect his people. And this is the way that he did it. And he gives us this background, I think, for that reason and that reason alone. That is the explanation of why I see no spiritual interpretation in chapter 1 when we are just introduced into a great pagan palace and the banquet in hall where a drunken orgy is taking place. I see no spiritual significance there. All I see is that God is going to overrule, and God by his providence will overrule man down here, and he's going to overrule Satan also. Now, that ought to be a comfort to God's children today. Now she's become queen. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast, and he made a release from taxes to the provinces and gave gifts according to the bounty of the king. And other words, he cut the taxes. She was so pretty, and he was so delighted with her that he cut the tax bill of everyone. And I wish we could have some kind of a contest in Washington today if this would help reduce taxes. But all they do is increase the taxes, not decrease them. But the king did that. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet revealed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther had the commandment of Mordecai just as when she was brought up with him. Now, this is a very interesting incident that's recorded here. This girl, she becomes queen. She was beautiful, and it was her beauty that attracted this man to her. And I think there's quite a contrast here between Esther and Ruth, for instance. Back in the book of Ruth, this man loved her. But I think that it was not just simply because of her beauty. Esther won on that basis and that basis alone. Now, the very interesting thing is here that 
Mordecai, who had some sort of a small position in the palace, he's now at the king's gate. And what does that mean? Well, the king's gate is where the judges sat. Remember old Lot down in Sodom? He was sitting in the gate. He had become a judge down there. And here's Mordecai, all of a sudden is elevated from some minor position in the palace, maybe bookkeeper or something, and here he is out here, and he's a judge. Well, he's a Supreme Court judge, if you please. The question arises, how did this man, Mordecai, suddenly become a judge when he had just a very small position? Was it because of his ability? Well, by the way, I think he's a man of real ability, but I don't think he got it that way. You see, Esther has just recently become queen. And I have a notion it happened something like this, that the queen was sitting next to the king one day, and there was a lull in the business, and he began to talk with her. And she said, by the way, you have a man here in your kingdom, a man of real ability. Fact of the matter is, he raised me, and he's a very excellent man. He'd make a good judge if you ever have an opening. And the king says, well, that's quite interesting. I just had an opening. <laughs> I'm firing one up. I'll be glad to make him judge. And all of a sudden, Mordecai finds himself elevated to a place of judge. That's called nepotism today, and still the same thing. I went to visit a friend of mine who'd been elected to office, and... I found out the whole family was working in the office. They all had jobs, by the way. There's many that are like that today. I guess that's human nature, but this is interesting. But there's another little incident that takes place that's rather important here. We see in verse 21, In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Big Than and Teresh, of those who kept the door were angry, and they sought to lay hands on the king or Hagerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther informed the king of it in Mordecai's name. When inquiry was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now, this is quite an interesting incident. This man, Mordecai, was sitting at the gate. The crowds were coming and going through the gates. There were two men that he heard talking. He heard them mention the name of the king. And he cupped his ear so he could hear, and they were talking about a plot to kill the king. And so Mordecai immediately got word to Esther. And Esther, sitting on the king's right side, why, she reached over and said to him, said, by the way, you sure didn't make a mistake making this man Mordecai the judge that you have. And look what he's done. He's already discovered two men that are in your employ that are plotting to put you to death. And so the king says, well, I'll get the Secret Service investigating that immediately. And they investigated and they found out it is true. And so what happened? Why, they arrested these fellas, and they didn't have a long, drawn-out trial. Again, it spent taxpayers' money. The king just ordered them to be put to death, and they were executed summarily. But that discouraged any others from attempting to plot against the king. Of course, they were very uncivilized in that day, and they just didn't go in for lawlessness and pampering criminals. They executed them immediately. But the thing that's important for us is 
That was written down in the chronicles of the king, the log, as it were, the minutes, if you please, of the kingdom. But no mention was made of a reward to this man, Mordecai, because no recognition or reward was given to him. And I'm of the opinion that he probably turned that over in his mind several times. Well, I saved the king's life, and he could have at least have sent me a Boy Scout badge. He could have sent me a lifesaver button of some sort. Certainly, I would deserve that. Well, very candidly, the thing was passed by. And why? Well, all of these things are taking place. God is giving this to us to let us know that he's overruling this. God, by his providence, is directing all of this. Now, we see in chapter 3, and when we come to this chapter, why I probably should have called your attention in chapter 2, and I suppose I did, that that was the first beauty contest. Now, this chapter, the title I've given to it is Haman and Anti-Semitism. And we read here that after these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And now here is a man by the name of Haman. He's one in the long line of those who've led in a campaign of anti-Semitism. And this goes back of Haman to Pharaoh in Egypt. You remember he tried to eliminate these people by killing the firstborn. That was his way of cutting down on the population explosion. But it was to eliminate the nation Israel. And now we have Haman. And you can move down through the history of this world, and you'll find that again and again there have been attempts made to eliminate these people, all the way from Haman to Hitler, by the way. And today, we're told that in Russia, that there is a real wave of anti-Semitism. Now, God at the very beginning began to protect these people. He had to because they were to be the custodians of his revelation. The revelation God had for man would come through these people and also the Savior, the Messiah, would come through these people. And it has. God said to Abraham, I'll bless them that bless thee. I'll curse them that curse thee. Now, whether you like it or not, God's made good on that. That has been literally fulfilled down through the ages. And God even went a step farther in Isaiah's time. In Isaiah 54, 17, this is what he said. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, saith the Lord. Now, God says no weapon against you will prosper. And a great many people thought that Hitler might become a world dictator. And our nation, in fear, we rushed into World War II. There are a great many people that say today that we should not have entered Vietnam. I agree with that. There are a great many folk that say that we should not have been in World War II. I agree with that. I think that we should have stayed out of that and let the two juggernauts, Russia and Germany, slug it out. And then when they both got so weak that neither one could fight, 
then we could have stepped in, which we should have done at that time, and we should have, of course, supplied all of the material for the Allies. But this idea of always shipping our manpower abroad, I think, is entirely wrong. But at that time, we were frightened of Hitler. Many of you folk can remember that we thought this man's moving to world dictatorship, and it sure looked like that he was at that particular time. Well, God has stopped him. God stopped Haman. God stopped Hitler. Now, we are beginning to see why God has moved Esther to the throne. Because if she hadn't been there, this anti-Semite Haman would have exterminated these people because that certainly was his intention. Now, notice who he is. He's called an Agagite. And if you go back, and I'm not going to take time to go back today, but if you'd go back into 1 Samuel, for instance, why, you'll find that at that time, 1 Samuel 15, 8, the Agagites were actually Amalekites. The Agagite was the royal family. And God told Saul to exterminate the Agagites. And a great many people think that that's very cruel of the Lord to do that. But you see, when the Lord commands something, it may sound cruel to you and me, but he has a reason for it because he knows something we don't know. I always feel these people that are finding contradictions in the Bible and appear to be so clever today. They appear to be a little smarter than God is, and they know something that God doesn't know, that in his word, the Lord slipped up and made a mistake. Well, the one who slipped up and made a mistake is the one who, in this particular case, says, my, isn't it a shame that God would give a command to destroy the Agagites, nice, sweet little Agagites. Well, if this man, Saul, had destroyed the Agagites, there'd have been no Haman. And I'm of the opinion that one or two million people expired because of this man, in spite of what was done to head him off, that many had to die because of his presence. So I'm of the opinion to have gotten rid of a few Agagites back there in the days of Saul would actually have saved human life. It would have been a good measure, not a bad measure at all. But you see, the critic didn't seem to know what God knew, and God knew what the future was. But now here he is. He's a full-grown Agagite, and he's a man of real ability for what happens. Why, the king has advanced him, and he's put him above all the princes who were with him. And that means he's now made prime minister, and he occupies a unique position. Now we are told, and all the king's servants who were in the king's gate bowed and did obeisance to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. Now the king set out word. He said, I have a new prime minister. His name's Haman, and I want you to bow before him and recognize his position. And then we're told here, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did obeisance to him. Now, friends, I'm prepared to change my mind about this man, Mordecai. I told you I'd have to do that, and that's exactly what we're having to do, is to change our mind concerning this man. I feel like now throwing up my hat in the air, because this man now refuses to bow down. And that seems to be something that's quite unusual. I think all of these other flunkies that were there, they went down on all fours. That's the way they bowed in that day, not just bending at the waist. They went down. And here stands this little short fellow there looking out over the crowd, and he's not bowing at all. And why doesn't he bow? 
Well, this man was brought up under the Mosaic law. He'd been told not to bow to anyone but God. God was the only one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You're not to bow or to worship and to do anything like this. So this man's not about to do that. Now may I say this concerning Mordecai. Mordecai and Esther, they were not faithful enough to go to Jerusalem, but they are willing to jeopardize their life in order to save their people. Therefore, I'm sorry what I said about Mordecai. And you and I today need to recognize this. Let God determine who's faithful. We're not the ones to determine that. And this man, Mordecai, is not a clever politician here. This man is not bowing because he does have a background. And in that background, though he's disobeyed God, not returning, he has a background of not bowing to any but God. Now we have in verse 3, Then the king's servants who were in the king's gate said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? They said to him, You're foolish. You're jeopardizing your position and your life. Go down on all fours before him. But this man didn't do that. And it came to pass when they spoke daily unto him, every day now, this man Haman had come in. And when he did, all of them went down on all fours except Mordecai. And he hearkened not unto them. But they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he told them he was a Jew. Now, he had not revealed his nationality. And finally, these others, they said, why, this is foolhardy. It's absurd. Why won't you bow? And finally, he had to tell them. He said, I'm a Jew. And the minute he said that, in that day, he gave away his religion. He worshiped the one and only God. He had been taught in Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter. Hear, O Israel, Jehovah, thy Elohim, is one Jehovah. Jehovah, thy plural God. He's one Jehovah, and he was to declare to the world, the ancient world, a world of idolatry, of the unity of the Godhead. Now, we today are not in a world of idolatry, of polytheism. We today are in a world of atheism, not polytheism. And we today are to declare the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this man, at this particular point, has taken a stand. And they know now why. Because the Jew was known in the world of that day of worshiping the one and true God. Now, in verse 5, And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him obeisance, then was Haman full of wrath. Now, ordinarily, if he's a big man, and they called it to his attention, he said, oh, forget it. He doesn't want to bow. If he wants to be different, let him be different. But this man, Haman, is annoyed by this to the extent that he hates this little man, and he's not going to just take out his hatred on him. He's going to take it out on his people. And in verse 6, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Now, we see the plot. This man is working to destroy the entire nation of Israel. Now, can't you see that God was moving back of the scenes in this pagan heathen court, putting someone on the throne next to the king 
in order at the right moment that might intervene in behalf of him. You see, standeth God in the shadows, keeping watch over his own. And how important that is to note here, my friend. Now again, we've come to a very important place. And this is a good place to come in a continued story. Now, what's Haman going to do? How is he going to manipulate it that he can exterminate these people? Well, he's a clever rascal, and he'll come up with something. We'll see that next time. May the Lord richly bless you, my beloved. Well, the plot thickens. Next time, we'll hear how Haman intends to handle the fact that Esther is Jewish and what God has planned for all of them. Why don't you invite a friend to hop aboard? You know, you can visit ttb.org anytime to see if their local station carries through the Bible or invite them to listen online or through our app. And if you want to catch up on some messages that you may have missed in chapters 1 through 3, or if you'd like to spend some more time with the truths that we're learning in this wonderful book, visit ttb.org forward slash Esther. And if you'd like to be in touch by phone, call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE. Well, I'm Steve Schwetz. For all of us here at Through the Bible, we're praying that you recognize God's grace, mercy, and peace as you walk with Him today. Through the Bible exists to take God's whole word to the whole world. And we invite you to stand with us with your faithful prayer and financial support. Where will God's word go today?